Back in 2018, there were two news stories, each about a different baby uh, in, and each of the babies in Great Britain. The first one was about a royal baby. Prince William and Kate were about to have their third baby. It was gonna be a baby, baby boy, and Kate gave birth to a healthy baby boy, uh, Louis Arthur Charles, but you don't have to call him Louis Arthur Charles. They said, you can call him His Royal Highness Prince Louis of Cambridge, if you ever happen to meet him while you're out and about. So that was the first story. The second news story was about another baby, not a, not a royal baby, not born to the royal family, a baby named Alfie Evans. And Alfie was a little bit older. Alfie was born in 2016. But shortly after Alfie was born, um, Alfie's mom noticed that something wasn't quite right. The eyes didn't seem to be tracking in the way that, um, that you would expect. And, uh, and Alfie would, be, would sleep for long periods of time, like, uh, like unusual for a newborn. Um, and then Alfie started having seizures and things, uh, things kept going and progressing in a very bad way very, very quickly until, um, until Alfie became comatose and had to be put on a breathing machine just to, just to, keep, just to keep Alfie alive. And, uh, and that's, the doctors in Great Britain worked on Alfie for, for over a year, trying to do everything that they could to figure, out what was, to figure out what was going on with Alfie. But finally, the doctors came to the conclusion, there is nothing more that we can do for Alfie. And they said to the parents, uh, we think it's time to take Alfie off the breathing machine and just, and just, let, Alfie, and just let Alfie die. But the parents, the parents didn't want to do that. They wanted to continue to look for other options. And so they started going to other countries and they ended up finding a doctor in Italy who was willing to work with them with some different types of treatment to try to keep Alfie alive. But by then, the, uh, the medical community in Great Britain had taken the family to court and um, to try to get them to force, to force the family to take the breathing machine, um, to take the breathing machine off of, off of Alfie. And because the courts in Great Britain typically give more weight to the medical community than they do to the wishes of parents, the, um, eventually the court ordered that Alfie's breathing machine should be removed, and that's what happened. And, and Alfie ended up dying because of that, but not because the parents wanted that to happen. And um, just, a very, just a very, very sad story. And as I heard both those two stories together, it made me wonder, maybe it makes you wonder too, if the courts of Great Britain would have made the same decision if it wasn't Alfie Evans on the breathing machine, but it was His Royal Highness Prince Louis of Cambridge instead, would they still have told the parents, well, you have to remove this breathing machine because it's not, it's not worth it anymore for the child? It, uh, it kind of leads to the question of what, what does a person's life need to look like or what needs to be happening in that life or what is the determining factor for determining that this person's life is valuable enough that it is worth everybody's greatest love and greatest time and greatest attention because people obviously know how to make that decision. They make those decisions in a, in a number of um, in a number of different ways. And I want you to think about how you would answer that question by thinking about firstly your own life, and think about the last time that you maybe felt like Alfie's parents did, kind of kind of helpless, and broken, and at a loss for for what they should be doing, confused, betrayed, uh, any any number of things. Think about the last time you went through any type of suffering. Think about any suffering that you see in the world today. Yeah, extreme poverty, extreme sickness, extreme pain, uh, sometimes happening in very massive scales in certain, in certain places. And I want you to think about what you would say, not to the medical community, but to God, to try to convince God that either you or whoever you identify as somebody in the world who is going through the most pain, who is going through the most suffering, that they are worthy of his greatest time and his greatest attention. 
I have some good news for you. You don't actually have to spend any time trying to convince God that, um, that you or anybody else is worthy of all the greatest gifts that he can give. Because I want you to realize how God already looks at you. This is from the book of 1 Peter where it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, your royalty, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This week, as we consider the topic of suffering, we will look at the particular ways that God is merciful to us and the particular comforts that we find when we look at Jesus, the one through whom God is especially merciful to us all. If you have ever asked the question, why? Like, why me? Why this? Why now? Why? I bet I know something about your life, something that was going on in your life at the time. I bet something was not going the way that you wanted. Because we don't ask the question why when things go the way that we want, you know, like, oh, why did I win the lottery? <laughs> or, uh, why did we win that game? Or why are my children so well behaved? Why is my marriage going so well? <laughs> we, don't, uh, we don't question those moments. When things are going well, it's only when something is not going well. Um, why did I lose my job? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much hurt? Why did the accident happen? Why did someone I love have to die long before I was ready to say goodbye to them? Why? Jesus' disciples asked Jesus that question one day. In the Gospel of John, they came across a man who was blind from birth, and they wanted to know, well, why did this happen? And in particular, they wanted to know, did somebody mess up? Did somebody sin? Was God punishing this person or punishing this person's parents? So this is, this is how it goes. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, others said, no, he only looks like him, but he himself insisted, I am that man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Well, where is this man, they asked him. <laughs> so they want to know why this happened. Why the pain? Why the suffering? And in particular, was God punishing them? Was God angry at them? And Jesus said no. He said, no, this, this happened. Interesting answer. So that the work of God could be displayed in his life. And just, and just think about how that happened. Um, if God never allows this man to be born blind, and that's something we can say about all suffering in the world, is that God allows it to happen. He's not the cause of the suffering. But obviously, he allows it to happen. There's suffering he doesn't stop. But if God never allows this man to be born blind, then the disciples never ask about him. If the disciples never ask about him, then Jesus never heals him. And if Jesus never heals him, then so many people never ask the question, where is this man who heals? Then so many people never end up finding the God who heals. 
Jesus allowed the circumstances in this man's life to be as they were so that the world would have an opportunity to see how great, how great he is. He wanted, he used this suffering to help people find God. My friends, you know, we live in a world in which it is so, so difficult to see God. There is so much pain, there's so much hurt, there's so much sin. There's such a lack of good things that it's difficult just with our eyes and as we go through life to find God. And so God uses the things that are already present to help us to help us find him. You know, the, the only thing, the only way, that there is one particular way that God promises to use all of our suffering and all of our hurt. In John chapter, in John chapter 14, Jesus invited us to pray for whatever we want. Whatever we want. Uh, and then he told us exactly how he is going to answer all those prayers when he says, he said, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. In other words, whatever is going on in your life, whatever it is you're praying for, whether it turns out just the way you're hoping or it turns out the, the exact opposite, whether it's really easy, which probably isn't the case if you're praying about it, or if it really hurts, whether it's little suffering or a lot of suffering, there is one way that it is guaranteed to turn out. In some way, it's going to shine the spotlight on God. God is going to use your suffering to shine the spotlight on him. There is no possible outcome. And that highlights a very important truth about all of our lives. Your life is not about you. It's about God. Would you just repeat after me? My life is not about me. My life is about God. My life is My life is not about me. My life is all about God. Or another way to say it, your life is a work of God. Your life is a work of God. In some way, however you are hurting and whatever you see in the world, place that hurt into the hands of God. And you will see, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe next month, maybe not until you get to heaven, that God used your suffering in the same way that he promises to use every other aspect of your life to help somebody else see God. Because your life is a work of God. There's a host of a popular television show in the United States who every year around Christmas time invites the parents who watch his show to videotape their children opening their Christmas presents and to send in the videotape. And the reason he does that is because he wants them to do a particular thing with the gift that they give. He wants the parents to give the kids a gift that they know the child will not like um, so that the child unwraps it and reacts and the, uh, the funny reaction can be shared with, uh, with late night television all over, all over the country. And so one parent who sent it in, sent a video, wrapped up a rotten banana for their child. Another parent wrapped up a sponge. Another parent wrapped, wrapped up some broccoli and another one some carrots. And I bet you know how the kids reacted when they opened up those things. The, uh, the sponge went flying across the room and <laughs> the broccoli was thrown down to the ground and most of the kids started crying. <laughs> and of course, why did that happen? because they didn't get what they were expecting. They were expecting something else and how those kids react reminds us of an important lesson of, uh, of 
our feelings about our feelings that, uh, that we have as we go through life, just how closely our feelings of, of joy and sadness, of happiness and sorrow are connected with our expectations. When things go the way that we are expecting, we typically feel happy. And when things don't go the way we're expecting, we typically, we typically don't. And if you would like to have just a general idea of what your personal expectations are in life, just ask yourself in life right now, what has the greatest potential in life right now to make you feel sad or discouraged or angry or broken? Whatever it is, you probably have an expectation. But there's an important question that you need to ask yourself about your expectations, and that question is this. Do you have that expectation because God gave you the right to expect it? Or did you invent that expectation all on your own? You know, for example, can you find a passage in the Bible where God says, um, every day you will always have enough time to get your to-do list done. And you will also have enough time to sit down for some hot cocoa or some hot tea. And you'll also have enough time to sit down and watch your favorite Hallmark movies. <laughs> no, of course not. You won't find any Bible passages that say that. Can you find any Bible passages where God promises that your family will always treat you nice? And the people out on the, out on the freeway driving, they will, they will always be polite. And the people that you work with, they will always take the time to think about how their actions and their words and their decisions will affect your peace of mind. No. <laughs> no. Um, God doesn't give us the right to expect any of those things. He does give us the right to expect um, certain things, however. One of, our, one of our Time of Grace writers, in one of her blogs, she recently shared her least favorite promise that Jesus gives us in the Bible. Her least favorite promise that Jesus gives in the Bible. And you think about the promises that Jesus gives. I don't know that we often talk about our least favorite ones, but, but she wanted to share the least favorite promise that Jesus gives in the Bible, and, and it is this. Um, it's the promise that in this world, you will have much trouble. That's what Jesus promised his disciples. In this world, you will have much trouble. That's what we have the right to expect, trouble. Um, and as we look in the world, we see that it's full of trouble. It's full of pain, it's full of sorrow, it's full of sickness, it's full of sadness, it's full of heartbreak and heartache. It's full of, it's full of things that, that constantly leave us asking why or how is this, this going to end well, but it's, it's full of trouble. And why is it full of trouble? Uh, the, Bible, the Bible is very clear. In, in, in Romans chapter 8, it says that it's not just people who suffer. Uh, the whole world has been suffering. It says, talks about the whole world, all of creation has been groaning as if it's been in the pains of childbirth. And it will continue to do this. In other words, all of, all of the world is, is suffering. Or to say it another way, earth is not heaven. Earth is not heaven. And it never will be. So we should not expect it to be. This world will be full of trouble for the simple fact that earth is not heaven. You know that. I know that. And Jesus knows that. Which is why he went on after that promise with his disciples. In John chapter 16, the full verse where Jesus made that promise that you will have trouble goes like this. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, what you see with your eyes on earth is not the end of the story. Earth is not heaven, earth is earth, it's full of trouble. But heaven is heaven, heaven is heaven. And Jesus overcame everything in this dark world to give it to us for free. 
it's coming. But it means living by faith until we get there. Recognizing that sometimes our eyes are gonna see some very painful things. Recognizing that sometimes our hearts are gonna feel very, very broken. And our faith will always need to see the Jesus who was willing to die for us and who was powerful enough to overcome everything in this world that tried to bring him down, to prepare a place for us that truly is heaven. It's coming and we live by faith until we get there. As we continue talking about the topic of suffering this week, I'd like to read for you an interesting Bible passage. It's from Psalm 119. It goes like this. It was good for me to be afflicted. It was good for me to be afflicted. It was good for me to suffer. It doesn't sound right, right? Um, today and tomorrow, I want to talk a little bit about the context of Zephaniah, which gives us some insight into why that passage is in the Bible and why God believes it's good. So Zephaniah was given the job of going to God's people and telling them that they were about to lose everything. They were going to suffer in a lot of ways. They were going to lose their homes. They were going to lose their families. They were going to be separated from people they love and in many cases never get those things back ever again. And the reason why is because the Babylonians, the Babylonians were going to come in and they were going to take them away from their homes. They were going to overtake the place where they lived and it was going to be a, it was going to be a lot of pain. And what was the real reason that was going to happen? Um, it was going to happen for the same reason that a dad recently forced his 10-year-old daughter to walk five miles to school on a 36-degree winter morning. So his, his daughter had been riding the bus to school every day, and, which, was a, which was a normal thing, but she got kicked off the bus for bullying another kid. And this was the second time it happened, so now she lost, she lost her bus privileges. She was not able to ride the bus any longer. And so when she came home and told dad, you know, he's, she wasn't surprised that dad was disappointed, but she was surprised by dad's response. You know, dad looked at her and uh, when, when she said, dad, you're going to need to drive me to school now, he looked at her and said, you know, honey, riding the bus is a privilege and it's one that you lost. And, uh, and just to impress upon you the seriousness of this privilege, I'm not going to drive you to school. I'm going to make you walk the five miles to school just to teach you a lesson that this is something you need to take seriously and, uh, and you didn't take it seriously enough this time. And so, uh, and so that's what happened. He, um, she, he made her walk five miles to school. He followed in a car, driving as slowly as she was walking, and videotaped the whole thing, make sure that she was, make sure that she was safe the entire time. But it was, uh, he wanted to teach her a lesson. And that's really the real reason that God's people were going to be going over to Babylon. Not because the Babylonians were such big bullies to them, but because it became obvious to God that God's people had stopped looking at their relationship with him as a privilege. The book of Zephaniah has three chapters, and in the first two chapters, God does a really good job describing what was going on in the lives of his people at that time. They had, they had stopped worshiping him. They were, they were grabbing, as, uh, spending their money on as much stuff in this world as they could find and not spending any time or money worshiping him or praising him. They were quick to complain when things didn't go their way. They were arrogant. They were gluttonous. They were just, it, was, uh, it was obvious that God, did not mean more to, um, that God didn't mean so much to them. And so God took all of those things away. By, forcing the, by having the Babylonians come in and take them away from their homes, they lost all these things that they, that they had such a tight, that they had such a tight grip on uh, because he knew that his people had an expectation. They were expecting that God wasn't going to care about it. But he did. 
Um, so much so that he had the Babylonians come, Babylonians come in and take it all away so that they would uh, lose everything that they had such a tight grip on and learn just how quickly we can lose everything in this world that we want to hold on to so tightly. And also so that they could realize that if the thought of having or holding something in this world is what has the biggest control on our heart and our, and our emotions, then that means that God is not the one who has the biggest control on our heart and on our emotions. And if God is the one who does not have the biggest control on his heart or on our emotions, if his, if his word is not the one thing, the primary thing that is leading us through life, leading us through our, uh, through our decisions and even through our feelings, then we're not really following him. We're following something else. We're following something different. And if we're not following the one who created joy, who created paradise, who created happiness in the first place, and no matter what other path we are following in life, whatever it is that we're pursuing, we're never really going to find it. And God knows that we become guilty of the same thing as his people so easily. That there are so many things in this world that distract us. And we say, I wish I had that. Or I'd be happy if I had this. Or my life would be better if, you know, if, if in this troubling world we have, uh, we have a lot of different things that we can fill, that we can fill in that blank. And God knows that it distracts us from him very, very often. And so he's kind to us by allowing us to suffer in this world so that we can learn more about who he is. The, um, Zephaniah in chapter 3, the last chapter, after telling God's people that they were going to lose everything they had, that they were going through a lot of pain and they were going to go through a lot of suffering, he said something that you might find a little surprising. He told them to sing like delightfully, sing, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. God took everything away from the Israelites. He allowed them to suffer so that after they lost everything that they thought they needed, they would realize that there was still one thing in their life. And that was God, who had not lost hope for them. A God who had taken away their punishment, which is exactly what God does for us in Jesus. Who had turned back the enemy, which is exactly what God does for us, uh, for Satan and his temptations. And a God who has promised to be with us always, which God very definitively showed on the cross of Jesus when he had the chance to give up on us. But he chose not to. He chose to be with us always to the end. Psalm 119, the first passage that I ended up, uh, that, I, that I started with today, where it says, it was good for me to be afflicted. The full passage goes, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. God knows that we have much to learn about him, much to learn about our own hearts, that we contribute to our own pain quite often. And so he uses suffering to serve us well, to help clarify our vision and to help us see that the one thing that always remains in our lives, no matter what we lose, ever, whatever else we ever lose or gain, is a God who will not give up on you for any reason. Back in 1990, a woman named Kathleen Dooley was supposed to have her wedding reception at the Hyatt Hotel in Boston on June 25th, but it never happened. Two months earlier, her fiance got cold feet, walked out on the relationship, and left her brokenhearted. So the wedding was off. So the reception was going to be off too. Eventually, Kathleen went down to the Hyatt Hotel and met with the events manager and shared the sad news. And the events manager looked at her and said, I'm sorry, that, uh, that must be very hard. And then she said, sorry again, because she looked at Kathleen and said, I'm sorry to tell you that I 
cannot refund your $4,500 deposit. It was, it was non-refundable. And so now Kathleen had, uh, she had two options. She could either just lose the $4,500 or she could still have a party since the place was reserved and paid for anyway. And after thinking about it for a little bit, that's what, that's what she decided to do. About 10 years earlier, Kathleen had been living in a homeless shelter. But she, uh, she got back up on her feet, got a job, and saved enough money that she could pay for a pretty nice wedding reception. And she decided to use that money now to treat those who knew at that point how she had felt 10 years earlier to a night out on the town in Boston that they would never forget. She sent official invitations out to uh, homeless shelters and drug addiction centers um, all, all throughout Boston. Uh, inviting those who have been broken by life, broken by addiction, and broken, in some cases, by their own life's decisions to, um, to take one night off from the streets in Boston to eat some chicken cordon bleu and sip on some champagne and eat some chocolate wedding cake and tickle, tickle the floor with, with their dancing feet. And, and it was amazing. People came. I mean, people came. And more than a few people throughout the evening commented to Kathleen once they realized that she was the one who was hosting the party, they said something to the effect of, I can't believe that somebody like me would ever receive this type of invitation. And yet the invitation still came. You know, the book of Zephaniah, as God's people were on their way to Babylon, as Zephaniah broke the bad news that you're about to lose everything good that, that, you've, been working, that you've been working for, that would have been hard. That would have been... That would have been troubling, and I bet, I bet they thought, the thought crossed their mind. I wonder if God wants anything more to do with us after what we've done to him. But God answered that very quickly through Zephaniah in the very last verse of the book. In the very last book of Zephaniah, it says this. This is God talking. It says, at that time I will gather you, and at that time I will bring you home. I will bring you home. These people who had broken their own lives by their own life's decisions, by their walking away from God, still had the right to expect a day when they would return home. Except the home that, that he's talking about is one that's even better than the one that they left and one that's even better than uh, one night out on the town in Boston. It's one that includes a menu that is far richer than chicken cordon bleu and champagne. It's a home that, uh, it's, a, it's a menu that includes the wiping away of every tear in the absence of all of your suffering and all of your pain. It's the home that was won for us by somebody who knows how it feels to be, in a sense, homeless, and somebody who himself knows how it feels to suffer through a lot of pain. Jesus knows. Whatever, whatever you're suffering, whatever you're going through, whatever the, whatever the cause of your pain, whatever the depths, whatever the depths of it, there's one thing we know about it. We know how God responded. And God looked down on this earth. He looked down at your life. He saw the suffering. He saw the pain. And his response to it was to come down to this broken world and to suffer right alongside every tribe and language and nation and race. His response to it was to suffer with us and to give us a friend who would not only be with us from the beginning to the end, but who will guarantee that one day the suffering will end when he takes us home place that God believes you belong. We'll get there. Home is coming. As you were listening today, did someone you know and love come to mind? 
Well, that's the perfect next step that God is putting on your heart to share this episode. So many people hear about Jesus through the simple invitation of someone they know, love, and trust. So enjoy sharing this with someone that you know, and may God bless you as you do.